0: My name is Rob Hudson. I'm one of the pastors here. We have a team of pastors that lead the church at uh, um, Wall of Life. And uh, there were quite a few of them actually here this morning. John's making a guest appearance in the morning congregation because he was on the bass guitar. But um, how was that time of worship, eh? Wonderful from the presence of God. i have going bless Johnny with a Samsung. Sorry, bro. it's not an iPhone, but there you go. And... Um, um, if you're still looking for a seat, there are some seats in the front here. There's uh, next to Matt and Hannah. It's like one of the best seats in the house, actually, right there, and between Damien as well. And um, freedom is one of those themes. In, in the Scriptures, there are some themes that run right through the Scriptures from beginning to end. And so the theme of redemption, you can see it in Genesis, and you see that in every single book of the Bible all the way to the book of Revelation at the end. And they, they're called the great themes of the Scripture. And freedom is one of those things as well. You see it again in Genesis where the enemy comes to take the freedom from Adam and Eve when they sinned. They were free. They thought they could be freer than they were, which was impossible. And they ended up falling into bondage. And this picture is played out throughout the Old Testament, this this um, contrast of bondage and freedom throughout. And one of the places we see it most profoundly is in the Exodus. Israel and. Uh, Hundreds of years of slavery are liberated by Moses, in, which is recorded in the book of Exodus. They leave Egypt, they cross the Red Sea, which has been supernaturally opened by the Lord, and they're brought into the promised land. There's a bit of a delay, 40 years, because of their disobedience and grumbling, but that's the motive there, or the motif. And uh, that was actually just a shadow or a type of what was to come through the great deliverance that Jesus Christ brought. And we, That's what we've been singing about right now. And uh, Paul is at pains when he writes his letters to the church, the churches, all of the churches that he was working with. But there's one church in particular where Paul writes his letter, and there's the Church of Galatia. And I, I really I mean, I, I love his kind of passion in this letter. This is his cage-fighting letter. Do you know what I mean? Like the other letters are, um, I'm going to sit in a, in a room and debate with you. The Book of Romans is an incredible book on the theology of our salvation. But in the book of Galatians, he kind of just straps his knuckles up like this and says, okay, let's get on with this and I'm fighting for your freedom here. I'll take anybody on. And in chapter 5 and verse 1, he, he, he says this. He says, it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. And it's kind of like he's, he's saying to them, he's saying, can you not see that Christ didn't come to set us free only for us to slip back into some form of slavery again? He set us free so that we would truly Live free. The problem is that so many Christians end up allowing bondages to come back on their lives again or come to the cross without letting go of the bondages that were in place. And uh, Paul is uh, hes uh, quite deliberate in reminding us again and again of the fact that we are in a spiritual battle. In 2 Corinthians 10 and verse 3 it says this, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. He's not talking about the fact that we are walking in fleshly sin. He's just saying we're, we're in the nature. So we, 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 if you look around the room right now, what do you see? Flesh. Okay. I look at Johnny I see flesh sticking out of that weird T-shirt there. Um, some of us have more flesh than other people, but we're all in the flesh. And Paul's saying, but we're not, this is not what we, how we're working. What we're we dealing with, actually, is we're dealing with, we, well, we don't wage war that way. We wage war Spiritually. We actually fight our spiritual war on three different fronts. And uh, that makes for some difficult battling. We fight a war in our own sinful flesh. And uh, I'm not talking about the actual body itself. The cravings of our bodies are neutral. When your body wants to have food, it's a neutral desire. If you um, become gluttonous and fill it with way too much, then that's a sin. But the, but the, the neutral desire, when Paul speaks about the flesh, he's talking about that old nature that has been crucified with Christ but is not completely dead yet. So it's, it's kind of like when the, when the war was being fought against, uh, in the Second World War against Nazi Germany, the, on D-Day the enemy, the, the fatal blow was, was um, struck to the enemy. And there was no way that Germany could possibly um, withstand the armed forces that were now advancing against them. But it was, so everyone would say, if you were talking about Germany, that Germany is dead, except there were some Germans that didn't know that. There were some divisions that were still fighting against that. And it's kind of like that in us as well. The, the flesh is dead, but there's some parts of it that in their death throes are reaching out to try and drag us down with them. And that's why sometimes we'll sit in our room and we'll go, what is this? I'm, I'm a believer. Where does this come from? Where did that thought come from? Where did that action come from? Why would I give in to this? It's the flesh at work in us. And that's one of the areas that we warfare against and Paul talks about putting to death the flesh with his desires, or mortifying the flesh. In the old English, there's also the world systems that oppose us. You turn on the TV and um, they're selling a car, except it's not just a car. There's a woman in a bikini as well, and it's saying, "It's saying, why don't, why don't I use your lust to get you to buy this car?" And uh, and that's the the tamest portion of that thing. The world is is the, the systems of the world are against us. And that's why and I quote that scripture in 1 John 2. Paul says, friendship with the, w- with the world is hatred towards God. He's not talking about the world that he sent the son to save. He's not talking about people. He's talking about the systems and the philosophies and the understandings and those things that have, that have uh, posed themselves to God and, and set themselves against the rule and the reign of God. And so if you just sit and you, for example, say, I'm going to binge on Hollywood movies for the next two weeks and you just sit in your room and you binge I can guarantee you you're going to walk out of that time your language is probably going to have changed your attitudes are going to change your attitude towards other people are changed because those systems and that belief system is contrary to the belief and the truth that comes from God the last one is that we fight the front that we fight under Satan and his demonic forces And Ephesians chapter 6 I'll read that scripture in a moment um, highlights that for us particularly problem is that many believers don't even believe that Satan is real. They believe in evil, perhaps. They believe in this idea of evil, and there's um, in a sense this evil entity, not a person, is against us, but it's not particularly against us. It's just against things in general. And I love this quote from C.S. Lewis from his, um, his book, The Screwtape Letters. Who's read The Screwtape Letters? My goodness. And you call yourselves Christians. I cannot Believe what I'm seeing in this room today. No, I'm serious. It is an outstanding, it's a fun book to read. But it, uh, any, any book by C.S. Lewis, I want to say you can read. But this is a, this is a really good one. In his 4 word. he says this. He says, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race, he's talking about us as humans, fall, can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them they themselves are equally pleased by both errors and half a materialist or half or a magician pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. And so the enemy, the best thing we can do is if we completely don't believe he exists, we think he's a he's um that's why take any children in the room. He's like Father Christmas. i like that. So he's a figment of our imagination. He's got the tail and the horns and the, and the fork like this. And we go, oh, he's, that's just a made-up thing. That's the one side. The other side is those people that are looking for a demon everywhere around them. Both of those are wrong. And yet Peter actually goes to the trouble as do the other apostles to warn us about the fact that we have an enemy. I was listening to something by Derek Prince the other day, and he was talking about it. when he speaks about, uh, he's dead now, but when he spoke about spiritual forces, demonic powers, he called them demons, he called People with no bodies, or persons, sorry, persons with no bodies. He wants us to understand that we're not dealing with weird smoky mirrors cast like Casper the Friendly Ghost. We're dealing with these persons, non-humans without bodies. They're spirit persons that are against us. And uh, the devil is one of those, and a powerful one. And so Peter says this, stay alert, wake up, watch out for your great enemy, the devil. And Paul goes on, I, I spoke about it in Ephesians. Talk about who this enemy is. And God wants us to know who our enemy is. He wants us to know what his methods are. He wants us to know also where we are vulnerable to his attacks and the weapons that are in our hands to be able to counter his attacks against us. And so in Ephesians, Paul writes this and he says, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to take your stand against the devil, the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly place. Now, friends, you can write that off, and you can say, Paul is using hyperbole. That's one of the things I loved about Derek Prince's. He actually does a, because of the Prince Amplified version of this of this verse, and he says, our wrestle is against persons with, no, with non-bodies. We actually are in a battle against specific spiritual Persons that are contending against us. And there are various layers of them. There's an idea here of, of an ordered structure, this, this host of the enemy that is at work against um, the purposes of God and those that are with Him, which is most of the people in this room right here. So Paul continues in that verse that I read in Corinthians, in chapter 10, and he says this, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. And that word for stronghold there in the Greek actually has two sides to its meaning. One is literally a fortress or a castle, what we would have in our mind when we think perhaps of a of a, of a stronghold. The other is anything that we, can, that we rely upon, and particularly in this context anything that we wrongly rely upon anything that we trust in other than trusting in God If, uh, if you've had any interest in um, Israel and in Jewish history, you've probably heard of Masada before. Masada is a fortress um, in Israel. It's built upon this rock. How's that place? Eh? That makes for some difficult attacks and uh, as I've said in my notes, in 66 AD, a group of extremists, So this was just before the fall of the temple, which was in 70 AD, um, uh, they were under Roman occupation. The occupation was getting more and more um, difficult for them to cope with and, and manage. And the Jews were always, um, I want to say, a proud slash rebellious people. And uh, they didn't, they, they didn't want to sit under this yoke. And those that had missed the coming of Christ really did believe that God wanted them to be liberated from these oppressors. And so this group of 960 men, women, and children fell upon this Roman garrison at um, Masada and took it. And uh, they held that territory until um, it actually fell in, um, in 73, which I'll tell you about a bit later. But uh, uh, they, they held it for more than a year against eight to 9,000 trained Roman soldiers that came up against them. 960... Men, women, and children held off 9,000 uh, Roman soldiers plus another entourage of about another 6,000 people. And what was it that enabled them to, to enjoy the success? Was it their superior numbers? Clearly it wasn't. 960 versus 9,000 is, uh, is not good odds. If we had 960 South African, uh, um, 9,000 South African rugby players, we'd definitely beat the All Blacks if there were only 960 of them. So it doesn't matter how good or bad you are. If you've got those numbers on your side, you're going to win. Was it the superior weapons? They probably had some clubs. Maybe they had a few swords together. They were relatively rare for a citizen or even a rebel to have those things. Every Roman soldier had armor, had spears, had swords. They had um, big um, battering rams at their disposal. They, they, were, they were completely um, outmatched in the equipment. The reason they held them off for this long is because they held a stronghold. And the reason why the Romans, and I'll tell you again just now how much work they went into, but it was a massive effort that it required for them to bring the stronghold down. The reason why they went through all of their work was because they realized they would never have victory until, they would never have complete victory until the stronghold had fallen. See, while that remained, not only would it be a, a flag flying for rebellion, but from that spot, they could go out and strike right into the heart of the enemy from behind their, their, um, their own lines. And we belong to Jesus Christ. Those that have given their life to Christ belong to him. It's, it's, um, he has taken over every part of our lives. He has authority over every part of our lives. And um, strongholds in the life of a Christian are where the enemy comes and he takes an area like this, Messiah a stronghold, and he holds himself out there so that he can make attacks from within us into our lives and into the different areas of our lives. And some people say, but Rob, isn't the devil defeated? And I, yes, he is defeated. It says in Colossians and Paul writing again, he says that Christ on the cross disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame. And uh, the final outcome is already written. It's one of those I mean, serious spoiler alert here in case you didn't know this, but and if you don't want to know, just block your ears, okay? But, but God wins at the end of this. And the devil loses. And it's written about in the book of Revelation. And we, we have, we have a, a, a clear enough understanding that the devil will be finally put into chains from which he will never escape. And he's put into, this, this, uh, into hell that was created for him. And he will spend an eternity trapped there. But God in his infinite wisdom has allowed the devil a time to remain active and alive, free as it were, and the devil isn't rolling over and playing dead. Like the illustration I used of the D-Day, the en- there's, there's no possible way the enemy is going to be able to win this battle, but until it's finally over, he is striking out and he's at work. And his goal in the life of the world is to show discord and um, depravity and destruction. And I think we see that, don't we? I mean, you, you don't have to watch the news for too long and go, man, that's where conspiracy theories come from. There was this idea like, how come this is happening? Because in the normal order of things, there shouldn't be this much chaos and this much evil. The, the reality is we just don't understand the normal order of things. There is a chaotic, there's a force behind us, there's a person behind us that is that is sowing and destruction into the world. But not only is he attacking the world, he's attacking Christians as well. And uh, his goal for us, if he can't keep us from Christ, he wants to keep us from being Fruitful in Christ and he wants to keep us from being free in Christ and he's working at it constantly and his goal is to come in, fight us on all three of those fronts um, frontal attack from the enemy through the world and through our flesh and to um, obtain a foothold or a stronghold in our life from which he can manipulate us which he can dominate us and intimidate us and I'm sorry to tell you this but it's a war and uh, our freedom is at stake strongholds, where do they exist? They exist in, the, in our souls, which is the seat of our emotions, our mind, and our will. Now, this picture here is a, um, is a uh, we are not three things. I need you to know that we are one. So we can't, because Gnostic thinking comes from the idea that my body is separate from my spirit and my soul. So it doesn't matter what my body does because it's not my soul. So some people, see, people are clever when they sin, hey? So some people go, you know what, this is my body having sex with this person that's not my husband or my wife but my soul is still connected directly with the Lord because it's not. That kind of thinking is ungodly and Gnostic and weird and unbiblical. We are one, body, soul, and spirit. And so even as I draw it like that, it's one thing, but there are these, in a sense, these three components. And uh, the Bible says something remarkable happens when we're born again. In Titus 3 verse 5, it says, um, we are regenerated. There's There's a washing of regeneration. So when we come to Christ and we receive Him as our Lord and Savior, this, this remarkable spiritual transaction takes place. If we come in faith, as most of us have done, and we recognize that there is no salvation apart from Christ, we recognize that our sin has separated us from God, and only through what He's done on the cross can we be saved and we receive that salvation. What happens is the Holy Spirit then comes into us and we are born again, and things act, we actually change. The Bible calls us a new creation. So what has changed in us that we become a new creation? Our our bodies are kept alive by the Holy Spirit. I don't even fully understand that. But the Bible makes it clear that it's the Spirit that keeps us alive. And so in a sense, we've died with Christ, but the Spirit keeps our body alive. I don't want to get into that because there's no real value in it. The second thing is that um, our, um, our will is liberated. Before we came to Christ, we were in slavery to sin. But now, having come to Christ, we're no longer slaves. We have a free will. We can... We can live for God. Uh, thirdly, we, um, our heart, the heart of stone is taken out of us and a heart of flesh is put into us. And so this heart that was hard and um, unresponsive to God and even um, in, in enmity to God, an enemy of God, suddenly becomes a heart that wants to be, wants to pursue God. And our mind begins this process of being renewed. We, we become, we get on this journey and God says in Hebrews that he actually writes his law in our hearts and in our minds. And so, instead of where we were before, we were resistant and pushing against God, we actually are leaning into God now. Our natural position is to come into him. And whenever we find ourselves pushing against him, we're acting against our new nature, not in our new nature. So, strongholds occur because the enemy comes against us and exerts um, demonic influence into our lives. And... Um, comes in when our thinking is opposed to the thinking of God. When we believe a lie instead of the truth. And I'll go into a little bit more in the Strongholds in a moment. When there are serious areas of sin in our lives that weren't dealt with before the cross. And I want to say, every area of sin can be dealt with when we come to the cross of Jesus Christ. I'm absolutely convinced of that. But I've also seen people come to the cross, one man come, meet Christ, and every part of his life is completely washed and changed. And another man comes to the cross, and his life is, um, he carries so much baggage across with him. So maybe you, you know of somebody that was an alcoholic. We had a, a friend of ours, Mike and I, he was an alcoholic, a chain smoker, um, um, engaged in Eastern kind of mysticism. He comes to know Christ as Lord and Savior, never drinks again, never smokes again, and breaks his hold. He's, he's completely set free. And you probably know people that have come to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior and are still battling be released from the devil's macaroni. You know what that is, it's smoking, you know. And uh, um, and that addiction still has a hold in their life. Or they, or they were battling with pornography and came to Christ and there was a, a degree of freedom but they're still battling with that in their life. And so some sins have to be dealt with, I mean all our sins have to be dealt with the cross, but some carry them across and still have to have them dealt with. Other areas are being sexually violated, including being abused as a child or raped, involvement in the occult. False religions, and uh, when we harbor hatred or unforgiveness towards other people, and I, I want to explain a little bit of what I mean by demonic influence, because I don't believe that be- I don't believe that believers or Christ followers can be possessed by a demon in the sense that their lives are completely controlled by that demon. Christ has come into us when we're born again. The Holy Spirit comes into that inner man, and He dwells in there, and so we belong to Him. And so I don't believe Christians can be possessed by demons. But I do believe they can come under undue influence from the enemy when he gets a foothold in their life. And my point of this is to explain this this morning. So we might be vulnerable in an area like lust. If you were, I mean, this could enter any sort of way. You might, as a boy, have stumbled upon your dad's secret stash of pornography and you kind of got caught in that. Maybe tragically, and this is, this is tragic, you were sexually abused as a young child. And so there's a vulnerability in your life to lust. Then what happens is the devil, aware of this, entices us into sin in that area. And if we don't understand what's going on and we fight and we don't resist the work that he's doing, we give in to it, we become increasingly vulnerable in that area until he's beginning to exercise a degree of control in that area of our lives. And if it continues unabated and unresisted, it becomes an area where, even when we come to the point where we go, I've had enough, I want to be free, we find ourselves unable to actually find the freedom that we want. And my experience has been, and I know this is Mike's as well, is I have prayed for many people that I believe have had demonic strongholds in their life. And I can't tell you, like, this is a place um, in Scripture where I can point to exactly this, or this is, or um, I heard, or Saw it. I did tell you that story about the Hindu lady where the demon said, leave her alone, she's mine. But, um, but even with Christians, I've prayed many times for Christians to be set free of demonic influence in their lives, and I've watched them change overnight as God has set them free like this. And I'm, I'm okay that there's a bit of grayness in this area. Some things the Scripture is so absolutely clear about, and some things the Scripture leaves vagueness, there's there's enough vagueness and so I'm not going to be emphatic and black and white about this I'm just going to point us to what the scripture does say, the experience that we have had and invite us into a place of walking into freedom so again for me strongholds can be described like this, faulty thinking patterns based on lies and deception and an inner condition where Satan still has power to exercise undue influence in our lives, let's go to the next slide I want you guys to reflect on these questions. And if you say yes to any of them, it may. I'm I'm emphasizing may, not saying it will. It may indicate that there is a stronghold operating in your life. I'm going to read them to you. Do you have difficulty in giving or receiving love? You know what's happened is so often as we follow Christ, we've come to accept some things that we should never accept as if they're normal. And so... Somebody that pulls away from love is unable to receive love or unable to give love. And we go, well, it's just the way he was was raised. It's just the way she is. When actually God never created you to be that person. And he never intends for you to stay in the place of being that person. He actually wants to liberate all of us to be like His son, Jesus Christ, that can receive and give love. And if we can't, what is going on? If we lift the hood of our lives and we look in the engine, what's what's happened inside there? friend of ours, um, his name is Ryan, one of the elders from the evening congregation he came to church the one day and as he was leaving home, he started his car and he heard a <coughs> like this in his car and the <coughs> ends are kind of half and then <coughs> turned over like this and he said, what the heck was that, was it weird? Anyway he drives off and, and uh, he gets to church he does this thing, he goes home that night the next day he gets in the car and there's a smell in his car and what the heck is going on here? Anyway he opens up the hood again and all you animal lovers are going to weep this point, and uh, there was a cat sleeping in the engine of the car that had got caught in the engine when he started it and had died in it. And sometimes we don't realize that under the hood, don't lose the point now, don't all of you cat lovers just be completely broken now. The cat went to nowhere, actually. Anyway, that's a whole other story. But, um, but the point is that sometimes there are things hidden in the engines that we don't know about. We actually have to lift it up and see what's going on there. Do you come from a proud family? Are Are you proud? Are pride not such a bad sin? It's only the one that caused Satan to fall. Are you rebellious or angry? Are you unusually stubborn? Do you have unforgiveness, resentment, bitterness, or hatred towards a person? Are you continually anxious or depressed? Have you ever contemplated or attempted suicide? What irrational fears or phobias do you have? Have you ever visited temples or been into witchcraft? I just want to touch on this one for a second. I, I have visited temples, and I believe the Spirit of God lives inside of me, and I believe the Spirit of God is never intimidated by a demon, ever. And so I quite like causing trouble, and so that's the reason why I go into temples. I know I'm bringing the Spirit of God into a room full of demons. That's, that's what happens. So when I come in, I'm just thinking to myself, oh, there must be panic going on in this place right now in the spirit. of I genuinely feel that way. I have sufficient faith that God who is inside me is way greater than those outside. But Paul writes and he says to the Christians, do not um, eat food that's been sacrificed to demons if your conscience is weak. If, if you if you aren't able, if, if, if there's some part of you that is that is disturbed by the fact like, I know this food was was sacrificed to demons and now it's been put before me. I mean, I, I, would, I just thank God for this food because I'm not eating a demon, I'm eating the food, I've got no problem. Bring my curry chicken, I'll eat it, no problem. Not that all curry chicken is sacrificed to demons, I was going to make that point. Although Mike might think it is with his, his, uh, his aversion to spices. But, um, but if your faith is weak and you think to yourself, like, like, I feel like I might be exposing myself to sinning, then forces don't do it then. Don't have the curry chicken um, or the steak or whatever it is that you feel that you can't have. And it's the same thing with going into a temple. If you've gone into the temple with the intent, number one, of worshiping or reverencing what's in that place, obviously that's a problem. But secondly, if you've gone in and, you're, and you felt like, I shouldn't be in this place, and you felt almost violated as you've gone in, then that can open a door for the enemy to begin to work in your life. Do you have charms? Do you, have, do you carry charms or do you have idols? If you have got Buddha statues in your home, I know they're pretty and I know they make great paperweights And I know they look great in the garden, but that is an idol, and every idol has a demon behind it. Friends, don't put that junk in your life. Do you fantasize in lust? Are you drawn to illicit sexual encounters? We had a guy in our church. He had this policy, flirt to convert. We had to eventually put him out of the church because it's not a biblical policy, just in case you are wondering about this. So he would go out to clubs and bars, and uh, he would pick up girls like this sleep with them and then bring them to church the next day. I know. I know. That's what we said as well. So, um, so anyway, anyway, it's a whole long story. I said to him, though, because he was a decent enough looking guy, but he wasn't that good looking. It's like, how the heck do you just walk? I've never walked into a bar and had a woman come up to me and go, I'd like to sleep with you, ever. And uh, so I'm like, thinking, like, what the heck's going on here? How come that doesn't happen to me, but it happens to him? Friends, I, I believe this. I believe that when lust is operating in life when the spirit of lust is operating in our life, we are drawn into illicit sexual encounters in ways that will blow our minds. And this guy could walk into a bar any time, any night, and walk out with a woman that would sleep with him because I believe there was a spirit of lust operating on her life and a spirit of lust operating in his life, and they were drawn together like this. That's why also when some people, whenever you go into a community, they're kind of like, you know, no matter what page I go on to, I end up in a pornographic web page. I'm going to say to you, buddy, you've opened a door somewhere for that to happen. That doesn't happen when you're, when, when you're completely free of lust. That happens because the enemy knows you're vulnerable and he's pouring it into that area. Have you been sexually molested? Do you suffer from chronic sickness? Do you have times of heavy doubts about the existence of God or your own salvation? If you've answered yes to those questions, and the reason why we've got the slides available to be downloaded is so that you can take these slides and actually work through this thing afterwards, okay? What do we do if there are strongholds in our lives? I love this quote by Tony Evans. He says this, he says, the fortresses, these fortresses, these strongholds don't need to be remodeled. God doesn't tell us to capture them, change the locks and use them for him. Satan's fortresses must be torn down. That's why Paul says we have divine weapons to destroy, to demolish strongholds. And if you recognize that there may be a stronghold in your life, you'll also probably recognize that it's not so easy to bring it down. Maybe you've tried before. I had a stronghold in my own life of, of anger. And man, I used to try in my own strength to deal with this thing. My, my dad had a, this, the other way these things can happen is my dad had a, had a really bad temper. And he didn't, he didn't take me for temper lessons. He didn't call me aside and say, Rob, you've turned nine. I want to teach you about red temper now. Do you know what I mean? This is, and when I turn 13, we're going to move into to wrath and, uh, and throwing stuff. And when I turn six, whatever. You know what I mean? He didn't do that. It was like, I, what was in him was in me. That, that spirit of anger, that, that, in, that, that um, leaning towards it was something that I walked in as well. And I, honestly, I knew it was wrong. I didn't want it in my life. i have been born again. I mean, it's ugly. Nobody likes this thing. Um, Linda didn't like it. She was the person that counted the most, and she received the most of it, because that's what normally happens with these sorts of things. And I tried in my own strength to to get rid of it. I, so I knew it was wrong. I knew it was wrong. I wanted it to go away. I was deeply repentant, and I still didn't see the thing go away. And I would, I would try, like when, it, when I started to get angry, I would kind of, oh, I'm not going to let you come out. I'm going to resist your anger. Like, down, down, down. And then I would lose my temper, whatever it was. And um, the problem is because we don't fight in the flesh, Paul says. Though we walk in the flesh, we don't warfare in the flesh. We have to use the divine weapons that God has given us. And it can feel, and I'll tell you about how I did overcome it, how it can feel for us like this is an impregnable fortress and it's never going to come down. Maybe you have tried for years and years and years and you've just given up. I remember, I don't know if you guys remember that pastor in America called Ted Haggard, he fell tragically battled as a young man with homosexual desire. And uh, he was open about it as a young man and he professed it and he was regularly spoke about it. And then he came to a point in his life where he said, because I didn't find freedom, I stopped talking about it. I, st- I grew hopeless about the fact that it just continued on and on again and I never got free. And so he just buried it. And you know what happens when you bury sin? In the dark, it grows bigger and bigger and bigger. And uh, eventually what happened is he fell in a a tragic situation where he was um, having drug-induced sexual encounters with homosexual escorts. This man who led a church of 14,000 was a voice into the ear of presidents. The enemy had him at at the back like this and was was doing this work in his life. And it can feel at times like it is hopeless. But I want to tell you no stronghold is impregnable. Even the stronghold of Masada, what actually happened, if you go to the next slide, they, they built a ramp. Look at the size of that ramp there. Men with their bare hands carried thousands of tons of sand and rock to build a, a ramp that would rise 300 feet from the desert surface. That's, that's a 100 meter high ramp that they built with their hands. In a matter of months, they built this ramp and then they pushed up there this, this um, battering ram that they used. And it was big. It took, them, it took them weeks just to get that up there. And once they got to the top, they were able to break through the wall, smash through it like that. And what they encountered on the other side was quite tragic. The 960 um, men and women and children had taken their own lives to avoid actually having to live under Roman um, leadership. But the stronghold fell. At the point when they knew that it was done, they, um, they killed themselves. And there's not a stronghold in our lives that can resist the work of Christ. And so no matter what that area is, friends, this is what I'm going to say to you today. No matter what that area is in your life that you are ashamed to talk about or fearful about bringing out into the open or think, oh, what's the point? I've tried before and it's never come down. I'm never going to walk in the fullness of what it means to be a Christian. I'm never going to become like Christ to the extent that I can. I want to say that's a lot of rubbish. There's not a stronghold that can't come down with God. And I'm going to give us some practical understanding of how to do that last 10 minutes. Four A's. Remember Matt's pin code, fourteen twenty twenty-eight. 28. Well, I want you to remember four A's this morning. Number one is to accept. Number two is to admit. Number three is to act. And number four is to be accountable. And I want to start with accepting. In Colossians 1 verse 13, speaking about our salvation, it says this, that he, God the Father, has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of his beloved son. So there's a rescue act that is taking place here. We cannot bring down the strongholds until we accept Christ as our Lord and Savior. That has to be the number one thing. And maybe you, here today, you're visiting and you've uh, maybe, maybe, maybe you've been coming for a while and you know about Jesus, but you've never come to the place of receiving him as your Lord and Savior. Because see, it's not enough for us just to acknowledge that there is a God called Jesus. Because even the demons know there's a God called Jesus coming and recognizing that my sin has separated me from God. And unless I put my trust in that finished work that he did on the cross, I will pay for that sin myself. I will stand before God the Father one day and give an account for that sin. And I'll pay for it. I'll bear the penalty. But Christ bore the penalty on the cross and offers it to us now, offers forgiveness to us freely. And when we come in faith and say, I trust in you, Lord, And it's a hard thing to describe. I mean, how do you describe to somebody what it means to come except to say this, I know it has changed me when I came to him in faith. And I know that it has changed the lives of most people in this room tangibly and manifestly that they've become, um, they've been set free because of that encounter with God. We need to accept him. We need to accept, secondly, what the Bible says about God. Friends, there's that song we sing, I've heard a thousand stories about what they say you like, but I've heard the gentle whisper, um, and it goes on like that. And I love the song, and it's right exactly what it says, that he is a good, good father, except it 's the word of God is not the gentle whisper that tells us who he is. He is not an ogre in the Bible. He is the father in the Bible. The, the reason we have a revelation that he's a good, good father is because the, that's what the Bible tells us. You have to misread it to come to a conclusion that God is anything other than the most gracious, kind person that you could ever know. He so loved the world that hated him, has rebelled against him, has been like a a, a wife that has has committed adultery against him, but like, was it Ezekiel that went and took the prostitute wife back again and and brought her back, Isaiah, brought her back into his home again like this. That's who God is. And we have to go to the scriptures and let the scriptures remind us who God is. Because the moment one of the greatest strongholds comes from believing a lie about who God is. Secondly, we need to accept what the Bible says about who we are. Because that's the second place that the greatest stronghold comes. is us not believing what the Bible says about us. You're a nobody. You're a nothing. You're damaged goods. You're a, you're a lustful animal. You'll have no control over yourself. You, you can, you're a nobody unless you have this much money. You're nobody unless you achieve this much and when we start to believe those things, we start to act upon them, and then those strongholds start to develop in our lives. We have to come to place, I'm a son of God. And I was thinking about this the other day. I'm his, I'm his son. I'm his boy. You know what I mean? It's like I, I, um, I drive Ethan crazy. Because we told you the other night, I, he loves me when I come and wrestle with him every night in bed. But I didn't tell you that I kiss him about a thousand times during the... He rules dad. No tickling, no kissing. No licking, I lick as well. No, none of that stuff. So, um, but, but man, I, and I think to myself, with my imperfections, my selfishness, I can love my son like this. Oh, loved by God, I'm his son. The first step to breaking the strongholds is the understanding of who he is and who we are in relation to him. Secondly, is to admit. You know, biblical repentance flows when we truly truly desire to be free of that sin, not to be free of the consequences of sin. So in Corinthians, Paul writes, and he says, For godly grief or godly sorrow produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief or worldly sorrow produces death. And there's some great illustrations of this in, in, in the Scripture of guys that were, they were, they put on the, the act of being sorry. In fact, they were probably truly sorry they had been caught.
1: Do you know what I mean?
0: And there's a big difference between sorry you've been caught in something and sorry for it. Sorry the the godly grief that God's talking about is that kind of grief where it's like, Oh, this is wrong. So I, I was struggling with a sin some time back and um, I actually posted on Facebook today about shame. Have you you heard that phrase slut shaming? Has anyone heard it? Then they hadn't heard it. But what it means is to say, so for example, somebody dresses um, very promiscuously or very um, what's the word? Sexily I suppose sexy and uh, and so the negative, what I think is a legitimate thing is we judge people by how they dress or we criticize them but but the problem is you can't tell anybody anything about their sexual life anymore because you, you're accused of slut shaming and actually that idea is spread into the church, you can't accuse me of anything you just want to shame me, hey John you shouldn't treat your wife that way I, don't put that shame on me, I'm free I'm not going to have that shame on me and when I was battling with this era of sin I am um, I mean, when, when I fell into that sin, there would be a, a deep sense of, um, because of, it rises up from within. It's not something that comes from the outside. This, this this inner shame that would rise. This is wrong. I'm ashamed of doing this thing. And then what I would do is I would rationalize it or push it away or, or just get rid of it quickly and go, God doesn't care about it. God doesn't want me to be in shame. Let's push it away like that. But what happened was that work of repentance wasn't allowed to happen in my life. So the one day I sat with God and I said, Lord, I'm not going to rush through my repentance today. I'm actually going to I'm going to let the shame linger so that it can it can bore deep. Just let it go beyond the surface and let it go in where, where a true repentance can flow out of it. Because I'm not going to live in shame. See, that's the problem some people make. Is they walk out the room and they carry the shame with them. I know I'm not going to be carrying the shame once I open that door and I walk out. So I'm staying in this room for a little bit because I want you to do this work inside holy spirit just a minister and i just stayed in his presence and he got deep and he started showing me some of the implications of my sin if i just allowed it to go on and it worked and worked but i came out of that room not only had the shame been removed but i was set free of that area of sin in my life as well and friends that means we have to be utterly honest we lie to god i'm going to say he sees it all there was nothing he didn't see he sees it And we have to be honest with other people. James says, confess your sins to one another. There are some sins, and I want to say there's especially sexual sins, that have to be confessed. It is profound. You can. It's possible. But it's profoundly difficult to deal with sexual sin without having somebody that you confess it to. Your spouse or a trusted friend. Don't put it on Facebook and confess there. I'm not talking about that kind of stuff. And stop blame shifting. Stop saying, you, you know, the worst thing is when people say, I'm sorry but." Take the butt and kick it in the butt. Just no buts. I'm sorry. It, it doesn't matter what excuses. It's not okay. It, it's never okay for a man to commit adultery. Even if he is married to Jezebel, as some people think that their wives are actually that woman. It's like, I'm married to Jezebel. Anybody would have committed adultery. It's uh, as bad as it is, friends. It's you that made the decision to take that step. There's no buts. I'm sorry. Not bit, babe, you were really ugly to me. No, no. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, God, not that you didn't. I'm sorry. I repent. There's a, there's, a, there's a deep grieving inside of me, not because I've broken the standard of the world, but, Lord, I've, contrast, I've, I've uh, contradicted your perfect and beautiful and wonderful character.
1: And maybe under that
0: is to make restitution as well. Don't, if you're overcoming porn, keep the pile of porn in your bedroom. Okay? Burner. Don't keep the idol in your house. Don't keep the unhealthy relationships active. Forgive those that have hurt you. When we did this, um, we had that outreach with the Zionist guys in Zimbabwe. Before they got baptized, they brought all of their Zionist gear. Now, these people have got nothing in. I mean, honestly, they, I would have just taken the Zionist robe and kind of cut it off a little bit and turn it into whatever, you know, like a, maybe a work shirt for the field or something like that because they don't have any fabric. And this one guy had this cool staff that had been carved in, had a cross in it like this, but it was his Zionist and thing for, I don't know, resting with the demons or something, whatever he did with it. But you know what they did with this stuff? They, they made a fire, and before they got into the water to be baptized, they threw this stuff in the fire, and they said, Satan, you can have it back. And they got rid of it. They, they broke the ties. I prayed for a man the one time that was caught in serious demonic activity, and while we're praying for him, his gold bangle and gold necklace began to burn on him. He started to scream to get it off. He was, he was, he was, and they were symbols. They were status symbols for him. And he, uh, he, once he took them off, the, the pain went away. He didn't throw them away, though. He didn't tell us. He put them in his safe. And uh, some years later, he put them back on again. And friends, I'm telling you, almost when that happened, he began to walk in that sin of lust again. We've we got to make restitution means we take action. The third thing is we've got to act. We've got to engage in spiritual warfare against the enemy. We've got to use the Bible to change the way we think. Most of the battle takes place up here. And so we've got to allow the renewing, the transforming that takes place through spending time in the Word of God. Don't go to the Bible to read it. Let it read you. Don't go to the Scriptures to interpret them. Let them interpret you. Let the Word of God shift you. Every time that you go and go, God, is that is that something you're dealing with in my life? And then we've got to use... The scriptures to deal with ungodly thoughts. The enemy is the accuser, and he wants to get us into a place where we just we're, we're so tied up in our in our battle with him that we don't know what to do, and so we end up um, confessing and repenting of, of things that we haven't even sinned about. When when the devil comes and he puts a thought in your mind, so maybe he puts a thought in my mind and says, um, maybe the church is empty and Damien's left his iPhone X. He doesn't have one, but if he left his iPhone X on the table, then he goes and goes well, just. Never. I just want you to know that, okay. I'm just saying that thought comes in and maybe the devil says, You um, they would do it to you if you left your iPhone. And so the devil tries now, I don't have to repent of that thought. What's the point of repenting of that thought? It wasn't my thought. I don't think that stuff. That's the devil coming and putting a thought. What I've got to do is recognize it, and I've got to resist it, and I've got to use the word of God to take authority over those thoughts. This um, this prayer is a prayer that I pray. This is what helped me with my anger not a one-off. It's not that so nice when it is, hey, when you can walk in and the very God pastor Waves his wand over you and you ping and you, ah, oh, I'm free. It's like I go visit the chiropractor. Mariana's a chiropractor. I'm uh, not a chiropractor. A physio. And when I go to the physio, I don't want to do any work. I want to lie on the bench and I want to rub my feet and rub my back. And I want to walk out And instead they make me do exercises. It's ridiculous. So I've got to like lunge and balance on my one foot like this and and when are you going to put me on the bed And you do the work. I'm tired of it. And some people want to be set free like that. Put me on the bench, Pastor, and pray for me, and then set me off free like that. But actually, you've got to go through the exercises. And I prayed every day I would get up, and I pray this, Lord Jesus, this baggage has been with me for a very long time. When I've tried to get rid of it before, I've always failed. I don't carry this anger in my hands. It's so deep inside me. It's as much a part of me as my skin and my bones. I'm helpless before it. I want to be released from it. I confess to you that I cannot even help you with the process. I believe in you, and I believe you have the power to release me. You have come to live in my life. Now I invite you to work in my life. I cannot give this anger to you, but if you will take it from me, it is yours. Thank you for being my deliverer. And, uh, friends, sometimes, even beyond that, we have to invite some people to help us in that. There have been a number of occasions, some of which I've described to you, where a person has recognized that something is wrong, they cannot get free, and they've needed prayer to actually break a demonic stronghold in their life. And in those instances, it's not complicated, it's not scary, it's just, it's just the supernatural life that we walk in. And Linda and I have done it together, I've done it with other guys, and um, we had one young girl, I remember when Burtis was coming out of ship, um, and John Burtis went to go pray for her, and... Uh, They came out out of that thing, what the heck is going on here? And then she came to the office, and we spent five days praying for her. After five days, she was set free. And I'd been with her for five days. They brought her to church because she was from another town in the Middle East. They brought her to church a week and a half later. It was the first time I met her. I didn't recognize her from the girl that had been in our office. So radical is the change that takes place. And sometimes when you can't get set free, I, I had a guy that I knew that was betting. He was addicted to porn, came to Christ, and um, knew the porn was wrong, wanted to be free, said free, repented, repented, fell back into porn, felt incredible guilt and shame, repented, fell back into porn, guilt, shame, repented, fell back into porn, until he thought, I'm going to take my own life. There's nothing I can do. I cannot get free of this, and I can't live like this. And uh, one of the pastors there, and an understanding of this, and he spent some time with him and prayed for him and broke that all. Lastly, the next one is accountability. That's a tree with a wire that's been put around it when it was small. And as it's grown up, the wire has remained and restricted the trunk. And somebody's cutting it off. The tree doesn't just pop out, does it? Like that. The trunk is going to take some time. It might take years for it to completely grow out and the, and the marks of that thing's removed. And when we've had strongholds in our lives that have been there for a long time, and even when the, the, this, the, the wire is cut and we've been set free from the demonic stronghold, we've become so accustomed to processing things that way. So even if I'm free of, my, my natural inclination is free to, um, of, uh, the spirit of lust has been broken off my life. The way that I reacted when I was under stress or under pressure maybe was to default into a lustful um, response. So my, I'm in, I get in that situation again. Although the devil's not making me do it, I'm like, it's my... my, my my muscle memory, as it were, takes me into that place again. And so I need to walk in a relationship of accountability with others who are going to help me learn what it means to live free. I want to say two things about accountability. It needs to be regular, it needs uh, regular, and it needs to be uh, from your side. See, what happens is we, we want somebody to hold me accountable. The friends, you're the one that needs to be free. You need to push in on that relationship to the one that is working with you you need to be honest with them. You can deceive them. If you want to lie, there's nothing they can do about it. Unless they get some sort of message from heaven, I I have had people lie to my face, and God hasn't shown me that they're lying for whatever reason, because it's their responsibility, you have to walk in honesty. You have to, in terms of accountability, be a part and a participant of a faith community. This is a place where God's grace, encouragement, affirmation will flow into your life, which speeds up the